everyone, and welcome to Representation in Cinema. We talk about the representation of black, brown, and indigenous people in movies. This podcast is hosted by Our Voices Project. Our goal is to dismantle destructive stereotypes of minority groups perpetuated in the media by producing films centered on the multifaceted experiences of black, brown, and indigenous people. Our Voices Project acknowledges and honors that the lands we live, love, grow, work, and learn on are the ancestral homelands of the people of the Onondaga, one of the six nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, along with the Cayuga, Oneida, Onondaga, and Mohawk, and Tuscarora. We acknowledge that our society was founded upon the exclusions and erasures of many indigenous peoples through centuries of genocide and forced separation from family, culture, language, and from land, spirit, and mind. As filmmakers, we are committed to working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism through truth-telling. We invite all of you, our listeners, to join us in enacting justice by taking such steps as helping to work towards truth, healing, and justice for Indian boarding school impacts by contributing to the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. I'm Courtney Schaus, the Education Outreach Facilitator for Our Voices Project, and joining me on today's podcast is Jackie McGriff, our co-founder, director, and producer. Jackie McGriff, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Our honored guests today making their debut on the podcast are Ronald and Ronnie Garrow of the Aquasasne Mohawk Bear Clan. Ronald Garrow is the founder and executive director of the Indigenous People Center in Rochester, New York, a nonprofit organization supporting and promoting awareness of the indigenous people's culture, primarily the Haudenosaunee. While creating and running the Indigenous People Center, Ron serves on the board of directors for... Thank you. A Mohawk community in Fonda, New York, and works full-time at the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles. Ron grew up on the Aquasasne Indian Reservation of Upstate New York and currently lives in Rochester, New York, near his children and grandchildren. He has worked with many individuals and local entities through speaking engagements, interviews, and public events to bring positive change and celebrate the indigenous cultures that are present in our region. He enjoys spending time with his children and grandchildren and is a Mohawk language speaker. Welcome, Ronnie. Ronnie Garrow is a 2021 graduate of Arundaquite High School. Ronnie played football and earned all-county accolades and was the team's co-most valuable player. He was recognized as an all-star for lacrosse as well. In 2021, Ronnie was a featured panelist on BIPOC Voices Be Heard, a virtual safe space for students of color to share their experiences with racism in their daily lives at school and in the community as hosted by the group Erase, Eliminating Racism and Seeking Equity. Currently, Ronnie attends SUNY Morrisville and is majoring in applied psychology. Welcome to Representation in Cinema, Ron and Ronnie. Thank you. Okay, so tonight we are going to talk about the film Indian Horse. Indian Horse is the story of Saul Indian Horse, a young Canadian First Nations boy who survives the Canadian Indian residential school system in the 1970s to become a star hockey player. The film is based on the novel by the same name by Richard Wagamis. Indian Horse stars Sladen Peltier, Forrest Goodluck, and Ajuak Kapashisit, who all portray Saul at different stages in his life. Stephen Capanelli is the director. 
So if you haven't watched the film already, you can watch it on Netflix now. So we encourage you to watch it and then come back to listen to our podcast. From here on out, you, we will be discussing the film in depth. So spoilers ahead. And as always, you have been warned. All right. So before we actually start discussing the film, I also want to give the disclaimer that this movie does introduce the discussion of Canadian residential schools, which in part includes harms against children, sexual abuse of children, secrets and shame. Um, and after watching this film, I also do want to acknowledge and um, give our, our great thanks and um, appreciation to both of you for being here mm -hmm. um, to work through this film, discuss some very hard and critical topics. Um, I do really appreciate that and value that very much. And so do our listeners. No. Also, um, thank you, Ron, for all this time telling me that I need to see this movie because it was absolutely amazing. And I'm really, really happy that, um, that with your gentle pushing, this is something that we have, we are bringing to our listeners because I think that our voices project was very, um, moved on a lot of levels um, as active allies in our community. Um, and I was very touched by the writings of this author. Um, and I think if we can just start out with maybe getting first impressions. Um, <clears throat> are you looking at me? Sure. <laughs> okay, well, with me, I... Um, the first impressions of the movie was actually we ran into it accidentally. We were working, we were looking for a sports movie and um, we ran into this and we started watching it. And um, I mean, I was just uh, devastated by the, um, what was going on. And I thought that it was a documentary about this uh, famous hockey player that grew up and became a uh, famous NHL player. And I thought that's what we were watching. So we were um, exposed to this uh, atrocity that happened to our our people for like over a hundred years, and um, it just it hit us. Uh, it hit me actually harder because I wasn't even expecting it, and um, it's just a horrible thing. You know, you can't even get away from racism and um, the the things that have happened to our people, and get away from being. Uh, indigenous and dealing with trauma even in your own living room and you turn on the TV and there it is when you're trying to escape the your day and everything that you deal with on a daily basis just being a normal person with the stress from work and the stress with your relationships and the stress with your home and your bills and you turn on then you hear and then you see um what happened to your people and the generational trauma that um, it caused. And it was, the whole film was just, um, unfortunately, not even as bad as it was. It was worse than the film. And uh, that's why I was like, wow, it's pretty good. I mean, it's not as, it was worse than that, I think. But, yeah. Um, I mean, One Man's Story, which could have very well been our... Um, my great grandfather's story, and uh, my my son's great great grandfather, a man who I knew, 
Could have been very well been his story. Mm-hmm. But he played football with Jim Thorpe mm-hmm. at Carlisle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that and you watched this film with your dad too by accident? Yeah, by accident. Yeah. And it took me too because I wasn't expecting it. Because when I picked it, I thought it was just a movie to like kind of honor our people and like show like the sports side of things and stuff like that. But what it goes to show is that we're so numb to it and that we don't show it enough about our culture, about Native American culture especially, to show that these are the things that happen to us. It's kind of just pushed to the side and doesn't really matter anymore. And that's the sad part about it because a lot of people don't know what happened. So one thinks that, it, oh, this is just a joke or this is just that, but really they don't see the, the trauma that it's been going on for generations for our people. So that's what was taken away from me in the movie, and especially that the church did that. It wasn't regular people. It was the church that did that to the, our people. Yeah. yeah, and it's to hear you say that um, is, is very striking to me because as I was doing research to prepare us for the podcast, uh, I came across some information about the author who actually said he did pass away in 2017. Oh, man. Uh, yes, he did. Um, but back in 2012, there was a an interview where he was talking about when he started writing the book him, himself, he was going to write the book about um, uh, just a hockey, a hockey book about this, the triumph about this indigenous um, young man who was going to make it big. And he was he was going to. Um, there was an actual dream, an alternate reality sequence in which Saul Indian Horse faces off in a one-on-one shootout with, with Vladislav Tritek. It was very much a shoeless Joe does hockey kind of story with a residential school as a very, very nebulous kind of background. This is where he starts out. But then he says, his parents and grandparents were both residential school survivors, and soon that legacy became a central focus of the story and he explained that it wasn't about the politics, but it was because of the roots of the residential school system being so far entangled in, in, in Saul's identity. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you both say that, where you both thought you were going to be watching this, you know, sports movie. Mm-hmm. But it ended up being so much more, and it sounds like that's sort of where the author was coming from, too. Yeah, right. The author um, also, since we started talking a little bit about the author, he did die in 2017, but before he died, he did give his blessing to these white filmmakers, white producers, saying, you know, I think you're doing a good job with where you're heading with this movie. I want you to produce this. Um, And if you didn't know, um, Clint Eastwood actually was one of the producers of the films, too, actually, um, after seeing what, what was going on and, and um, how well it was being um, managed and how important the story was. Wow. And just something else that I thought was striking is that each day before the shooting, the filmmakers were careful to honor the culture that they were um, seeking to portray, which was Ojibwe. Um, and they started each day of filming with a smudge, and a prayer that could have lasted up to 45 minutes, a ceremonial prayer. So they did take a lot of time to actually honor um, and give a lot of time to hold space and emotion for everybody on set. And I, I believe it was up to 52 indigenous people were actually hired um, to actually make the film happen. 
Well, that's good. I'm glad they took care of them. Um, you know, you have to have psychic boundaries and emotional support, and that that's a lot to deal with. And uh, um, not just to have from another, uh, from a colonizer's viewpoint, when you say you have empathy and sympathy, but the fact that these are my actual relatives that this happened to. My great-grandfather, that happened to them. And, you know, there's not a single indigenous person you know that that didn't affect them. And it happened to somebody that you're actually related to. And that, um, you know, when when that finally, when that actually hit me, um, because growing up in a colonized classroom, it, it did affect my thinking. And I really didn't... Um, fully comprehend that wait a minute you know it's all being presented as what happened to them what happened to them what happened to them but then when I start losing my colonization thought process I start wait a minute that's not what happened to them that's what happened to me that's what happened to us and it just hits in a whole different on a whole different way Mm -hmm. there were some there were some other facts about the film that um, were very moving and I, I don't know if if you had you knew this when oh well it doesn't sound like you knew much about the film when you were watching it I didn't know a lot of things about the film either until after when I started researching but uh, the yeah, I didn't want to ruin it for you so I just said <laughs> go watch it and, uh, <laughs> those type of movies right yes and so when I started doing some research the uh, the young actor that played Saul when he was taken into the, the residential school and they um, immediately bathed him and um, took his clothing and his stone and they, they cut his hair. They, were actually, they actually cut his hair. Mm-hmm. And when the young actor learned that he was going to have to cut his hair, um, he actually had reservations about playing the role. He did not want to cut his hair, but he decided because he had several older relatives that had actually attended residential schools that he wanted to do that to help teach others. Um, and so he, he said that he and his family wanted to make that sacrifice. Mm. And I, you know, I was hoping you might be able to help us understand what that means to have to cut your hair. So I have to cut your hair. It's 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 a struggle because it's it's a part of your culture. So it's a struggle to be able to do that because when you're cutting it, you're really thinking like, what am I doing? It's like this is part of me, and I, now that I'm been boiled down to that much to do that, it, it's it's a struggle. It's it's tough because when being indigenous, like your hair is part of you. It's your culture. Everything you braid your hair, it starts with that. You wearing it when you're little, everything like that. So it's it's tough, especially when you get it cut because that's so you know. So it is tough, especially with that. And when I got mine, when I cut my hair, it was because I was bullied. So it was it was tough for me. So I know it's especially when he says it's honoring. It's not honoring. It's more of showing people that this is what happened to us and this is what they did. So it's a, it's a learning lesson. Not uh, I'm honoring my people. It's more to teach people what they did to us. Tell them about the, the bullying. What do you mean about the bullying? Okay, well, um, when we um, 
about getting the haircut and that sort of thing. And uh, I seen Ronnie one day and he had cut his hair. And I was like, just wondering why that was. And I asked, I was like, why did you cut your hair? And he's just like, oh, I just, I just wanted to cut it. And just, um, and that was it. I was like, okay. But then when he was on his, um, the, what was that thing you did with the voices with the um, teens? The race eliminating? Yeah, the, the event with the race. Yeah, mm-hmm. with that event. Then he shared that um, there was a lot of, he was being singled out and people were pointing out and um, he was hearing things directed towards his long hair and being a male and that, and that sort of thing. So in order to fit in, he told me that's, uh, he said on there, that's why he cut his hair. And um, that really, um, you know, that that really affected me. I was really sad when I heard that, that he had um, dealt with so much racism and that in order to assimilate into the uh, predominant culture, whatever you want to call it, you know, and to fit in, he cut his hair just to look like him. But uh, it um, that, uh, as it turned out, wasn't the case. And um, continue to hear more. Yeah, and yeah. At, at the school too, we we see right away what happened to the children who wouldn't stop speaking their language, mm-hmm. and we see that with um, the character of Lonnie, who apparently never stopped speaking his language. Nope. Because even at the end, when they're adults, he's still speaking his language. Mm-hmm. Um. And we know historically, I know, um, Ron, that you are actually um, continue to learn your Mohawk language, but you didn't grow up really speaking it or learning it. Yeah, no, they didn't. I didn't really learn my language. Um, Like I said, we came from, because of residential boarding schools, you know, they stole our language from us. And there was no really access to learning my language here when I became an adult and I was able to seek it out and so I've uh, I've learned my language the best I can and I continue to do that now and uh, you know my motivations are to be able to speak to my grandchildren in the language that the creator gave us and not the language of our colonizer and uh, she she currently is learning her language as well in her school so we get to uh, share in our language and that's really touching to me amazing yeah and it seems um interesting to me too that Saul didn't really stop speaking his language either Mm -hmm. he just wasn't as I guess defiant as Lonnie was no in a way well also for boarding schools since they told us we couldn't speak our language we would speak our language in quiet like speak it really low so they wouldn't be able to hear that we would speak it but we would always still practice it and do it without the blind eye of them watching over us so that's how they're still able to keep the language going, but it was very hard for them to keep it going. Yeah, yeah Lonnie was a sad character in that movie. He uh, refused to assimilate all the way from the day one and tried to move, uh, tried to leave, and um, he received, and they throw him in a cage or something? Yeah. Because yeah. he, um, yeah, and... Um, Traumatized him. Yeah, he was traumatized and... He still wouldn't assimilate, and he never assimilated the whole time he was there. And, um, yeah, he was affected by it, turned into an alcoholic drunk living on this, out on the streets of Toronto, mm-hmm. which, you know, 
That's uh, that's a horrible. It happened to a lot of Native Americans back in the day because of the boarding schools. It would send them into alcoholism or drug addiction and all these things because that's what they helped to mechanism to cope with it for what they went through and their trauma. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the, so it's interesting when we see, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but then it's interesting when we see um, Fred and his wife were residential school um, survivors and they seem to be able to take in Saul and offer him some stability. Um, and we don't really see that they're having any kind of um, outward trauma in terms of addiction or a, a reaction like Lonnie, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so you actually see that. And their son also doesn't seem to have any kind of, he says He says at one point, my parents don't talk about it, mm-hmm. um, which is also very common in terms of um, residential school survivors to the point that some families don't even understand that their families were actually in residential schools because it's never talked about. Right. It's kind of like the Vietnam War, like the, the soldiers, they're sworn in not to speak about it. It's kind of like them. They just want to push it down and not want to bring it back up. They just want to push it down and hold it down there and say, this isn't part of what happened to us. Let's move on and turn a new leaf and try to make the best of it. So I think that's what the, the two parents were trying to do. They were just trying to make the best of what happened. The trauma, because of so much trauma. Yeah, in um, my family, we never really uh, spoke about residential boarding schools or anything. The only thing that we ever heard about was that uh, my great-grandfather went to Carlisle with Jim Thorpe. And that was the only reference there was never any um any speaking on the any of the trauma that went there went on there or any of the abuses that occurred that was all we pretty much uh pretty much the only thing that was discussed even if i asked and um nobody really wanted to talk about that yeah so and an interesting part when he left and he went to the um to that home mm-hmm. and you know we skipped through about an hour of the movie <laughs> we went right to the yeah interesting but, part really. um <laughs> when they called him over and they told him that you know he can leave and go to the um go with them it was just like he was so um institutionalized he just was standing there like what do you mean I can leave like, he never thought there was ever an option that he could ever leave. Like, he, um, the first time in his life he was ever, a decision was his. Mm-hmm. And um, he just, I, it, it seemed like all the way, even when he went and got his bags and he was leaving, it was like, is somebody going to stop me and tell me that this is, they were, you know, this wasn't real? And um, that was that was another uh, subtle but um, sad, really sad part for of the movie for me yeah yeah and I I mean I think um you know you bring up Jim Thorpe and he had you know his athleticism and you know that was definitely a way for him to escape and and sort of you know break out from 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 those experiences for him and 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 it is definitely a way that Saul is 
you know, he's good at this white man sport, you know, that it's being referred to. And, and then it's also, you, you start to see where he's pretty much being told this is really a white man sport, but he's really excelling at this white man sport. So what do you think that, you know, hockey did for him? I mean, you know, you see Lonnie, if you were to compare Lonnie and Saul, you know, what do you think saved saved Saul? She's using quotes there for save for all yeah. you can't. Of Sorry, that's right. No, it's fine. <laughs> want to start? Uh, I feel like it brought out the parts that he was able to get some of his anger out about what was going on with it. Because when he's on the ice, he could skate and get his emotions out. But it was, it's kind of tough because you're still thinking about it constantly. It's always on your mind. But I just feel like sports brought out the part of him that he couldn't and expresses himself. So I feel like that's what sports did for him and helped him express himself. Um, I think that the hockey, when he was at the residential boarding schools, was a good thing for him to take his mind off of what was happening in the school. And he got to be able to, um, you know, um, admired by people and even get some special treatments. And that was a good good way to occupy his mind to escape uh, the horrible things that were happening in the school. When he left the school and then he made it up to the, I, I, we would call it the AHL now, um, and he started playing in the bigger arenas, uh, racism came back. And it was no longer an escape for him. And just dealing with the constant racism and hearing all those people make those racist taunts and um, hearing the noises, you know, the um, stereotypical Indian war hoop noises at him. And he'd score and they'd throw those thing, those little figurines on the, f- on the floor, make them war hoop noises. And um, the media couldn't cover him without referencing, making some stereotypical reference uh, to him. Saul lit up the warpath tonight with four goals. He scalped the other team. Um, all those uh, those terrible things. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a terrible thing. You, you grow up with the race, and then you think you finally escaped it, and then going to go do something that you love, and then it's even worse dealing with more racism and he just, he could never escape it. And, you know, he'd, um, what was that one scene? He's get, got up in the morning, went to go read the newspaper mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, uh, about how good he did. And there's a picture of him on with a tomahawk right. and yeah. a big war bonnet on. And, uh, um, it's just like, what, why? And then, you know, why Why does he have to always deal with racism every single, constantly? And it isn't just an embellishment for the movie either. It's the true, it's true. It's really how things are. And um, then people are even, that faction of people are even represented in the movie. He's like, oh, just get over it. Mm-hmm. And that is even being, people are out there right now these days currently saying that oh just get away everybody is so sensitive why does everybody have to be so sensitive about everything anyone you know these days and people say that and i hear that every single day oh so what 
he just had a picture of him with a war bonnet on, and they just were doing that war, making them war hope noises. Why does everybody have to be so sensitive? And um, that's, uh, you know, and it drove, drove him to madness. He had to quit doing the thing that he loved because he just couldn't, take it couldn't deal with the, drove him to alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, being in the, <clears throat> there was a, a great juxtaposition between when he actually did get up into, like, the that white man's world. Again, I'm doing the air quotes. Yes, but <laughs> but it really was the white <laughs> man's yeah. world, actually, because yeah. he had these these agents or managers who were just telling him, just leave, you know, don't worry about the psychological abuse. You're going to do great. You'll right, do just fine. Just because they're, doing, they're being, like, rude. And I was like, dude, it's more than rude. Like <laughs> Exactly. It was, he was being re-traumatized <laughs> right, is exactly. what it was, and everything that he had experienced was just – he was just being re-traumatized, and they were unable to support him. Whereas when he was with uh, his friends, his indigenous team, the Moose, um, some things that really struck me, you know, the whole scene in the bar when mm-hmm. they just all went out one at a time and just got beat up, and, like, they were still joking about it. They were, yeah. like, joking about it, and, you know, there's this this sense of humor that comes with the coping um, of the trauma, but they were still there for each other. And he joining the team and having come from the residential school where it seemed like a lot of the other guys on the team didn't know that world, he still was a little bit more hesitant to just kind of let things go, whereas the rest of the team wasn't. But they still had that sort of way to cope together. He didn't have that support system anymore, right? Yeah. It was a struggle for him because you come from a place where people, yes, they're native, but they don't truly know what happened, but they're accepted of it because they had family relatives that were inside of that situation, going to boarding school and doing things like that. So they were more accepting of it. But when he went to the other team, it was it was a white man's world again, like you said. So it was tough for him because, for instance, the guy behind when he got his jersey when he was in the locker room for the first time, he said, he better make me little or I'm going to beat you up. That's not a, a good teammate. That's not having somebody's back. Mm-hmm. With the moose, he knows that they had his back. Say somebody hit him into the boards, his teammate would go over and hit the other guy. And tell him, st- stop taking that. On the other side of the things, if he was on the other team, they'll hit him and they'll just look at him. So it goes to that part that he knew that they had his back, but he knew that here they were never going to have his back. Right. Yeah, humor is definitely a way we've dealt with generational trauma and – uh, we continue to use it, playful banter. You see That's them, true. they're using a lot of playful banter with those teammates. They call them Bambi and mm-hmm. stuff. And um, when you uh, deal with indigenous people or you're around indigenous people, and uh, that is something you have to get used to. Uh, I've had, um, you know, people who are not used to it and, they think they don't really realize that uh, it's just part of the culture, and uh, once they get it, they get it, and then uh, you know things are. It's like, oh, I got it now. It's just, <laughs> and then you know, well, then everything's fine. But uh, um, that actually is part of the a um, culture diversity training. They used to send some people out to the reservations to work with indigenous people, and they'd come back and say. Um, 
I can't work with them. They keep picking on me. They're always joking. I just, they can't. And they're like, I had to sit them down. I actually have a training and say, no, no, no. That's just how indigenous people are. They do a lot of joking and playful bantering. It means you're, you're doing good. If they're doing that, they feel comfortable with you and you should, um, you know, you're doing well, go back out there. And then, then they get in and they're able to, uh, work with them. But, and they learn they got to let them know beforehand before going out and deal with them uh, or work with them, I should be saying here. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's something that we noticed too. Um, the other night when we were watching it with Ronnie, see, see, look, they're joking with each other. They're still joking about it no matter what. Indigenous people, you know, our, our humor is legendary. And uh, some of the funniest people you meet will be indigenous people. And, even currently with the news media and the things that they've done, we've made so many jokes about it. Like when um, CNN, they did a survey and they said about who vote, who voted. They had white people voted, you know, whatever percentage this is. Uh, black people voted this percentage. Hispanic people voted this percentage. Asian people voted this percentage. And then it was... Um, Creatures? No. That, and then it was... Uh, Something else. Yeah. Um, I was like, something else, 3%, something else voted, 3%, yeah. something. Uh, I was like, there's something else. And then we just went with it, you know. It was like, uh, started going online and then just making so many funny jokes about something else. Is like, Christopher Columbus didn't discover America because something else was already here. Oh, my god! <laughs> and, um, you know, we just started and... Um, People like some post some beautiful woman out there, indigenous ones like, well, ain't you something else, you know? And um, all those, and there's so many uh, funny jokes. They just can't keep us down because we just we just keep laughing and rolling with the punches, you know. And there was the what he was talking about was ABC News. They were doing a uh, a segment on. Um, indigenous films and TV shows that are doing well. And she said, next up, we're going to be featuring the um, indigenous creatures that are taking over, that are taking something like taking over the news or the something like that. She called us creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like one. indigenous creatures. Wow. And they didn't even, um, I didn't see any apology or retraction or anything like that. They just acted like it didn't even happen. And, you know, they call us creatures. And uh, that's what comes with our, the form of racism that we deal with, which is called invisibility. And that's, this is one of the things. If another group had been called creatures, uh, I don't think it would have went over so well if they would have said that about black people. Uh, yeah, um, as a black person on the podcast, uh, that's a hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow they were able to just act like it never even happened. Yeah. They just didn't address it. They didn't apologize about it. There was no retraction, mm. nothing. But we, you know, we got some good jokes about it and everything, and they were all over the place. Well, we they had the Bigfoot. Oh, Did you see that one? No, which one was that? It was on uh, memes. They said they were related to Bigfoot because they were a creature. Oh, the, the other indigenous creature, and they had Bigfoot on there and stuff. And um, I forget some of the funny memes that they have. But, um, yeah, 
What, what was some of there them? There was a big I mean? poster of all the other mythical creatures. Oh, yeah, oh, and then the indigenous person there. It's like the indigenous creatures, and uh, it was, it's really um, funny. We got a really good sense of humor. Uh, it's something that we have to have to deal with after dealing with residential boarding schools and genocide and racism on a daily basis, which still um, affects us. us every single day. As a matter of fact, just before I came in here, I, I got a um, kind of triggered parking out front um, when he came out and was like, hello, are you looking for somebody? It brought something up for me when in my youth I was parked in front of like my girlfriend's house and somebody crossed the street. I was like, no, I'm fine. Thank you. And they called the police on me. And that's and that brought that up, you know, for me. And because I was in Gates, and um, they're like, "What are you doing here?" It's like, "Well, you know, I'm just parked on the street, not bothering anybody." And the cops pull up on me and ask me what I'm doing, and I'm um, so waiting for my girlfriend. It's like, "Well, who's your girlfriend, Bill?" And they want to go check it all out and see why I'm parked in the middle of the street. But that was like 30 years ago, and um, that brought that and that, uh, I guess you call it re-traumatized, kind mm -hmm. of. I really wasn't getting ready to cry or anything, but I did. I still brought it up, yeah. But I did, uh, you know, remember that, and that wasn't a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. So racism is alive and well. Yeah, in the, in the film, you talk about the invisibility of Native people, and we can you just go back to the way they handled um the death of the little girl mm -hmm. at the residential school, and there was no service for her. There was no discussion about it. There was just she was there one day, and the next day she wasn't. Um, you know, there was no humanity in the way the kids were treated. Um, and you mentioned how they just didn't do anything with the grandmother who had died. Um, left her on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. So those messages were loud and clear in the way in in the in the book in the movie, um, and uh, and those messages are still you know present today, as you were alluding to that it's just the way that they're delivered, you know, that have changed. Um, and the book too, especially those examples that you were alluding to around the sports, the way they were throwing those figures on the ice and things like that those are very um loud messages very loud racist messages that people today i think would be sort of really surprised and shocked at to think that things like that are still happening today and you know we'll see that in our mascots like our our mascots today and i know there's lots of um people who are trying to get mascots on in different high schools in our region changed over i know in waterloo recently their mascot has been changed um but i know like especially for you being the most recent athlete um is that something that you experienced or continue to experience i know you continue to play sports uh in yeah college. i did especially in high school i would experience it because when i was playing lacrosse the team with original name was the rondequoit indians mm -hmm. but we changed it to the rondequoit eagles mm -hmm. So a couple of the parents, actually, my dad was at the game, and they had the Aronquit Indian shirts on. And my dad went up to the school to inform him of it and, like, how offensive it was and stuff like that. 
and they didn't really see anything offensive with it. They thought that it was honoring our people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it, it wasn't really honoring us because if we put the, on there the, a white person as, the, as a logo and said, this is, we're honoring you, this is you, we're honoring right. you as our mascot, it would be up in flames. So it's like people don't see the racism within it. They just think, like he said, invisibility. They just think that it's just there. Oh, you guys are just a name. But if we had you as just a name, it would be okay? Yeah. 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 And I I don't know, was there any other, were there incidents of even today, like in college sports and things like that, are people making, like, uh, saying, do people say things or... Uh, not so much in college because they're more like exposed to it because it's more out there. So like, kids are more mature now. So like they want to learn more stuff and they want more research like, upon it. Because people will come up to me and ask me, oh, you're Native American? Where are you from? And stuff like that. Instead of coming up with me, oh, you're Native American? Get away from me. Instead, they want to learn it and they want to know what's about the people. Oh, good. Interesting. Well, that's a good change, positive change. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, the thing that brought me to into this work and it just couldn't stop. And what brought about the change in around quite was an incident that happened at uh, the basketball game mm-hmm. in around And that was only in like 2019, maybe it was. And um, we were at the high school basketball game. And during halftime, Ronnie was sitting with, he didn't want to sit by me. He wanted to sit in the student section because he's <laughs> way, way too cool to sit with oh. me at the, <laughs> at the basketball game. But he can't, but not too cool to come ask me for something at halftime for nope. some money to go get some concessions. So he comes across the floor and he gets about to the middle of the floor. And he received about the same treatment that Saul received. And um, they started making the racial taunts and calling his name and making the war hoop noises in the middle of the gym when he was in the middle of the gym floor at Arondequay. And, um, I mean, there's hundreds of people there. This news media was there. The uh, athletic director, two different teams were there. And it's a packed gymnasium because they were, there was the year they won the state. And um, nobody cared. They were making racial comments, racial uh, bigotry comments to my son in front of hundreds of people, and nobody cared in the whole gymnasium. And I brought it to the awareness of a security guard, and he literally was like, so what? And um, he's like, are they doing it anymore? He's like, no. He's like, well, I don't know. What do you want? He's like, well, who's, who can I talk to who's more? He's like, well, there's the athletic director over there. So I brought it to her attention. And she said, you know, well, they're not doing it anymore. We'll talk to them. And um, who did it? I was like, well, what do you – and – um, they said they were going to talk to him, but they didn't really do anything at the moment. And, um, so that led to further discussions. I came back up to the school and talked to the principal the next day. And they said they were going to speak with the students about it and have some, bring some diversity training to the schools. And that led to discussions with, uh, the superintendent of school and, um, the, curriculum advisor on, you know, making some changes at the school. And, um, you know, positive changes are going on at Arondequay because of those discussions that happen. But I don't remember anybody apologizing to my son about that. 
And, um, again, they just acted like it just didn't even happen. And, um, you know, a similar incident happened to a black student out in, I think, Penfield, like two years later at a soccer game. They said he was called a racial slur. They made some, and they were firing the coaches. They were firing this athletic director. They fired the referee. They suspended students. I mean, heads were rolling about this. And, um, you know, it happened the same exact thing, racial slur, racial bigotry occurring to my son, and nobody did a single thing about it. And um, there goes some more invisibility. Yep, it's not easy being an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. So um, that hit me extra hard when I was watching that, um, and I would assume my son as well, when Saul was hearing every time he did something good, hearing all those racial taunts coming out of the stands and throwing things at him, and the players doing their war hoop noises across the line from him, and doing all those things. And I, th- I really truly think that I bet there's people out there that think that that is exaggerated. And it's not. The people probably think it's exaggerated for the movie, and it isn't. And that, that stuff still happens even now. It's horrible. And so one of the um, other really good things about that I learned from doing this research is that this movie is actually shown in schools in Canada as part of 10th grade curriculum um, as, a, as part of their Truth and Reconciliation um, to make their, their citizens aware good of of what the truth is and what really happened yeah to start their their truth and reconciliation programs um at least they're trying to do something right mm-hmm. trying to make some kind of um reparations and um it's spreading to the united states as well it is and we do have in the united states we do have of course we do have our history um, which over the last couple of years, you know, we're becoming more aware of. Um, we, we do know that there's been more than 350 government-funded, often church-run um, residential schools. As of 1900, there were 20,000 indigenous children in these schools, and as of 1926, 1925, there were 60,000 indigenous children in these, in, in these uh, schools. And these residential schools in the United States ran for 150 years. Mm-hmm. So we do have a long history and a long uh, legacy um, and a lot of truth-telling that we still need to do. Oh, this was after the in- Indian Removal Act and yes. and genocide for another over 100 years of that. And yes. then you went for another 150 years of residential boarding schools. Yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there, there is a lot of um, work to do. Um, you know, the, like I was, you know, that this film, the the goal of the film was to start the conversation in Canada about the truth telling, and and I think this is, you know, a, a goal of our Voices Project in doing this podcast too, is to keep the conversation going and to and to to help people understand. Um, and to lift the veil of invisibility. Um, 
And so, you know, every, every time we do say the land acknowledgement, we do talk about the Healing Coalition for Residential Schools and ways to give and to educate uh, yourself. We have people educate themselves about the history. Um, and it is something that we, we would like to see in schools um, and talked about and acknowledged. Um, because I think, Ron, what you said earlier in the podcast is worth repeating that there's not one um, indigenous family that is not impacted by residential school systems. Um, it's just it's just a reality. It's a fact. Um, and even in through the, you know, very end of the movie where you think maybe, okay, he's escaped this history of residential school, you know, this trauma that he's been through and what it's done to him, what it's taken from him, his family, his language, his um, person, his culture. Um, then we actually learn that there was more to the abuse that he suffered, even in the last, you know, you know, few minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there was more to his his truth that he had to to come to acknowledge or or just come to amends with. Yes, yes. Um. Oh, you mean when he revisited the school after yeah. it had been closed? And then he yeah. went to his grandmother's land, you know, ancestral land, and actually cried. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how far he's come. Mm-hmm. And that he's finally made it. Right. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of emotion throughout the entire movie, right? He was, um, he was, uh, his emotion was shut off. Um, you'd see glimpses of, uh, the one emotion that he could have was happiness when he was playing hockey, and that ended when he started, uh, when he went left and went to Toronto. So he didn't even have that emotion anymore. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, Terrible thing. I mean, it was a good. It was a good movie. They had a lot of um, uh, good reference. I mean, historically accurate references. I guess is what I'm getting at. And um, the sad thing is that it was even worse than they had than the movie said. Because afterwards, what we're up to ten thousand uh, bodies have been found. Outside of these residential boarding schools, and counting, yeah, and counting, they're not, they haven't even gotten through all of them yet. So, um, that's when I when I seen the little the little girl when they were just disposing of her body, and um, they put they're burying them on the side of the school. It's like, what kind of school needs a cemetery? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You ever heard of a school needing a cemetery? And uh, they just burned her in a barrel, right? And yeah. that was it. And um, it's terrible what them little the little kids had to deal with. They didn't have any uh, any dolls or anything or anything any toys to play with, and they didn't. Um, nobody consoled them when they got hurt or gave them a hug and told them that they loved them or anything like that. That's how they had to grow up and, and deal with uh, life like that. And it's, um, 
It's, I mean, and then it hits me doubly hard. I, I said it again, but I mean, it's okay if I say it again. Mm-hmm. Those are my relatives. That's kind of like what happened with Lonnie. If you look at him, like in the beginning of the movie, he was happy, joyful, like wanted to get out of there, wanted to go back to his culture and like the things they did. And then when he got older, when Saul was about to get out, you could see that he completely was broken. Mm-hmm. So that happened to a lot of kids that were there. They were broken, so they had no emotional attached to themselves anymore. Right. And we see the ones that did assimilate, even if – even through assimilation wasn't the answer because they still dealt with racism even if they had assimilated. Generically, Saul assimilated so that he could play hockey. And he went to this school and he graduated, I guess, to the school. They said he aged out. He did his whole thing. And, you know, he was never really in a lot of trouble, so he was an assimilated, um, I guess, what they consider a success. And... The purpose of it was so that indigenous people could be accepted into society. That was the premise of the entire premise of it. But then when they leave and they go and they're still not accepted, even though it's like I gave up everything so that, you know, I can be accepted in society and they still don't do it and they're still not accepted. And then they can't even go back to their uh, home reservations or and there's people there that will not accept them anymore because they don't know about their cultures and they don't know about their language. And so they're turned away and that may be what happened to Lonnie. And then, you know, he didn't, he's not accepted into society because I mean, he never wanted to assimilate, but he can't go back to his reservation. He doesn't even know those people anymore and he won't be accepted and probably lost his language and his culture and they won't accept him anymore. So now he becomes a bum on the street. And um, so did Saul, you know, he was sleeping in the park and, um, you know, with no education or job skills. And it's it's just, it's a horrible thing that what they did to us. Yeah, it was it was very much by design. And in and, and Saul, Saul's case, he didn't have anywhere to go home to. He had right. the mooses. The mooses, yes. Mm-hmm. You're right, he did. He did. He, if it wasn't for that... He wouldn't have had anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. So there was some bright spots. And it, it was nice to see at the end of the movie that he did find, like, his home. He did find his place. Found his way back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah. there any uh, final thoughts? Um. There uh. is that. I think... What you were sort of alluding, alluding to, Ronnie, is um, there is that glimpse of hope that he is healing, you know, that he's sort of come full circle. Yeah, especially, like, when he's up on the hill. Mm-hmm. You can see, like, the way that he's looking at them. Like, he's finally made it home. Like, I've went through all this trauma. I went through all this, and I'm finally where I, I need to be. I'm with my family. Yeah. So I think that's what was the basis of the movie, too, that no matter what you could go through, you're always going to have your family. And you—that's what you got to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the movie closed up nicely. I mean, I, just some of the things that were coming out for me yesterday. You know, the other day when we watched it was um, people just saying, "Get over it." I mean, I already covered that, but just saying, "Get over it." That was just so. 
easy for people to say that that don't deal with the constant racism and deal with the trauma. And for him, it, for me, it's generational trauma. And for him, it, you know, he experienced it. And, um, um, you know, I, th- I, th- I think it was a very important, a good movie that, and I'm, I'm happy that it's out there and, uh, people are learning from it. Yeah. I think, I think one of my cu- things that I was left with in terms of being curious is, um, where's this book, you know, maybe, is this a book that maybe we should, um, encourage it? it be part of, you know, high school curriculum. Um, I, I want to read the book now because I didn't even realize it was a, um, a movie that was made from a book. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious about that myself. Um, the movie was excellent, um, but in terms of enduring, um, you know, for for years to come and, and, and in terms of making sure that this is something that is not forgotten and has continued to be taught. Um, you know, I think that the fact that in Canada they're showing this movie to high schoolers and they, and they've created lessons around it and deemed it appropriate for teenagers. Um, and you know, they've already done all this work. I would like to see something like this, um, you know, taught here and used to teach our teens about it because it's the story is the same the story is the same and i feel like with that it'll get the kids imagination out so they'll be able to see it with their own brains and imagine it in their minds while reading the book okay this is what happened to them they were in the cellar by themselves and they could imagine that they're in that four by four cellar by themselves with nobody there nothing just themselves or when they get their hair cut they could visualize them female male whatever getting their haircut, just visualizing that. So maybe it could help to diverse that and make people see like, oh, okay, it really did happen. This is exactly what they did go through. Exactly. Or imagine having your language taken away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or being punished for speaking the only language you know. Yeah, I think um, another part that we really didn't touch part was the addiction services and the addiction and how that's affected our people. And... Um, I thought that was a really powerful scene when they they had their talking circle and they were talking about, you know, the things that they've gone through and what they're trying to deal with. And uh, Saul really couldn't um, bring himself to talk about it yet until. And uh, I think that wasn't that something like the first line of the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not going to be able to deal with it until he. Um. I'm not quite sure what the quote was. Well, but, like understands. Yeah. It. Well, it's like so. In order to understand where you're going or where you're going to go, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, to understand where you're going to go, you have to understand where you came from. Yes. yes. Yeah. And basically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's was the basis of the movie. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, you see a drunk Indian sitting on the sidewalk over there, and you're like, look at the drunk Indian, and you know that's yeah. a stereotype that we've dealt with for a long time, but you don't know the story, right. and there you go and that this is the story on how that came to be and and these people some of them uh do end up getting a spouse and getting married and trying to raise children with 
no parenting skills. The only uh, they grew up with model role models who were um, beating children, raping children, killing children, mm-hmm. and these were the role models growing up, and they right. don't know how to express any sorts of uh, emotion. And they don't know have any job skills, and they don't really have any parenting skills because they didn't grow up with any. And they're a lot of them are uh, turned into be alcoholics and drug abusers, and um, you know they have children and they raise them with that with those with those issues. And that's how where we go with the generational trauma. And um, you know they they can't. Right, and they can't express their emotion and tell their children they love them because they had a part of the coping mechanism mechanisms is to turn off your emotions, mm-hmm. and then you get so used to it. And um, you know, when you have your own children, you can't even hug and hug your own children and tell them that you love them, or even speak. You just stay right. numb. Like my grandfather, I think I maybe hear him say two words the entire time that I'm with him. The other time, he's complete silence. Yeah, shaking his head. Not to said yes and not to said no. Right. So that that um that part is powerful too. There's there's other layers, you know. The stereotypes are um you know, there's some truth in them, but also how did they get there? Mm-hmm. And the movie really addresses some of that. Yeah. Mhm. You see there there was the whole section when he ran in the line down sitting yeah. down the alley. It was yeah. like 10 Indigenous men sitting there, and um, there, there was a nice uh, cultural reference in there when they just he just nodded his head to each other, and then Ronnie pointed out, "It's like, hey, that's what you guys do. Uh, it's something we do culturally. We see another native person, even if you don't know him, you just nod your head to him and just keep walking. And we did that one one time when he was little. We had that at uh, at the mall. He was like, "Who's that?" I was like, "I don't know." He was like, "Why'd you?" Why'd you do that? It's like what? It's like you nodded your head at him. You guys nod your head. It's just like it's just something we do when we we see each other. We don't know each other. We don't even slow down. See each other, you know, ten feet away. Just like do your chin at each other and just keep on walking. Don't even. And I guess they call that the nod to each other, right? Or a little nod to whoever. Yeah. And that that was a nice little cultural reference in there that some people probably wouldn't get if they weren't. Um, you just go right by them if they're not indigenous. Yeah. Well, now we know. Right. <laughs> now the secret is out. You can throw them off, throw some people off and give them the chin nod when you <laughs> see them, and they'll be like, where are you from? Yeah. Nice. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you both for all of your insights and, and sharing so much. Um Oh. <laughs> I want to hear something. Okay. <laughs> From another uh, person of color, too. Hey. Um, so <laughs> so um, I was thinking a lot or, and with just listening, which is why I haven't said as much because I was just listening. Um, uh, but uh, you, Ronnie, had mentioned uh, before about the incident. Well, you both had mentioned about the incident with um, bullying and everything and how nothing was done, whereas, you know, the – Pittsburgh versus Greece game, you know, when it was racial slurs against a black player, you know, there was all this sort of stuff done. And and I feel as though I'm like, in the same way that that was dealt with, I'm like, this should have been something. I mean, we were constantly talking about how all of these 
racist things are happening to indigenous people and yet no one does anything or or cares there's no apologies nothing like that like this should have been something that was already like being addressed like you say this this horrible thing you know there are consequences and also part of those and then part of like how you move on is addressing it apologizing to the person and then changing your behavior um but of course we're not seeing that and so like it just i mean i'm not i'm not shocked but i'm also like y'all it's it's 2022 you know we're we're you know, with all of these corporations and organizations are talking about like how they're trying to be, you know, you know, diverse and inclusive, but like y'all aren't, y'all aren't doing the work. You're not doing enough. And so, yeah, in the same way that that incident was handled, like the same should be for indigenous people, for, for anyone like facing racism. But, and I think part of that is, I don't even necessarily know if it's, because people don't know and I'm sure there are people who don't know but it's like you've also had all of this time to to like educate yourself you know about what's going on to tune into indigenous people who are talking about these very instances in the same way because I can only talk about my experience but in the same way that you know black people have been saying well google is free um you know you can just educate yourself and look this up the same should be done you know with all, all other communities like even as a black person like someone who's outside of the indigenous community I'm like I'm not expecting any indigenous person to come up to me and educate me I'm that's on me that's my responsibility um to go out there and and learn so yeah so I hear you when you say that and honestly seriously more should be done because this should not be happening like shouldn't have been happening and it shouldn't be happening now like wake up people it's Again, it's 2022, about to go into 2023. Do better. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not wrong. Well, that, um, the viewpoint I, I agree with about, you know, it's not our job to educate you and um, you should be doing it yourself. Google is free and all that. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. people are lazy mm-hmm. and um, people need to be called on things. And, People need to be made aware and people need to, um, people don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. So by saying, taking that viewpoint, which is what a lot of people say, um, not a lot's going to happen. I don't, well, I mean, I don't, because I didn't take that viewpoint. I was like, okay, I'll help them Mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll help them to become better. It's not my job. No, it isn't. It's not my job to educate you. It's not my job to get, educate them. It's mm-hmm. not my educated job to educate anybody. No, it isn't. But how are they going to get educated? They're not going to. They've had uh, 400 years to get educated, sure. and they were going backwards. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to go in there and say, well, what are you guys going to do? And the answer is nothing. So if I say it's not my job, then who's going to do it? Gotcha. So that's why change is happening. and um, But a lot of, um, so being, uh, working with Ron and, and you know, working in solidarity to, to move our community forward, I think a lot of what Ron does is um, holds communities accountable. Mm-hmm. So by walking in and saying, 
what are we going to do to change this? I'll work with you. You're holding communities accountable. Mm-hmm. It's not more like I'm going to tell you what you did wrong. It's more like this is not okay. What are you going to do to change it? So that's accountability. Right. And that's that's different than saying I'm here to do a workshop with you and tell you everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a different way to approach that and to inspire um, learning and, um, you know, bringing folks to the table and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, in that instance, you know, a lot of the work that's been done in that district is spearheaded and inspired by that conversation, that initial conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been a lot of like, you know, more accountability focused, like, okay, we need to learn. There needs to be learning going on. Um, and then coming back and, and checking in and having that accountability, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is one way to do the work. Really. Right. And especially if like schools are named out of after Native American people and their their <laughs> their clans and things like that, yes. that people should be educated in it, mm-hmm. not just say, "Oh yeah, I go to Seneca." Well, what does Seneca stand for? Right. I don't know. How do you know that? You go to that school. You're supposed to know what Seneca means. Yes. You're supposed to know. Yes. And so we definitely need to make sure, like, yeah, that our children know and understand that. Because, like, to Ron's point, the children don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, the little kids that go there. They really don't know, um, and that's on us. Yeah. Yeah, and in Irondequoit, don't they have a school called Iroquois School? They do, yes. Hmm. yes. And you think that the students should know what that means and what that represents? And they and do now. Right, good. Yep. And I think my request is that they should fly our flag. If you're going to use our name mm-hmm. and you're going to call our your school the Iroquois School, then why don't you fly the Iroquois flag in front of your school? Yep. Makes sense to me. And there's right. a flag inside every school now, so we're mm-hmm. we're getting closer, and at, at least all the kids now know what the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is and what the the Hiawatha Belt, what the flag is, and and right. um, and they that's understand. and that's spreading as well because Pittsburgh schools just called and said they want to start um, heightening their awareness, and mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's spreading, and it's it's a it's a good thing. I'm really. Um, I'm really, I'm really happy and proud about that. That it's spreading to um, Pittsburgh as well. Right. I'm sorry that it had to happen about, you know, about what happened to my son, is what um, you said spearheaded this whole thing. But um, if any good can come from it, then that's, you know, it wasn't a wasted opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, when people say that there's, you know, no good can come from um, anger, you're not in a good place when you're angry and nothing good can come from it. I uh, disagree with that. I was very angry about what happened to my son and uh, some some really good, and I decided to do something about it, and some good things happened from that. But from what you taught us, you know, we try to do everything with a good mind. Moving yeah, that's our so. cultural teaching. Yes. Um, I get reminded about that quite often, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Try to start my day every day with the Thanksgiving address to uh, keep myself in a good mind. Mm-hmm. Say it a couple times a day. <laughs> it's good to keep. It's a yeah. good thing. To, yeah. It's a good it's like, thing, right? <laughs> it's like, yes, okay, I have to be true to my culture. <laughs> <Let me. laughs> 
they can just, uh, uh-huh. right. And it's not always easy. Mm. No. Yes, you have to do what you say us tell us to do, Ron. Right. Yes. <laughs> but thanks from the teachers of the I peacemaker. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. So you tell us that, and we remind you too, and we keep all we are, we're going to keep each other accountable, right? Right. But I cannot thank you enough, both of you, for being here and for having this discussion with us. I want to thank our listeners. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for your support of our Voices Project and our representation in Cinema Podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at www.ourvoicesproject.com. Uh, for more information about what we do, you can go to that website. Sign up for our newsletter newsletter there too to be the first to get notifications about podcast episodes and new podcasts you can listen to this episode and others under representation in cinema on any of the platforms listed on our website uh, again at www.ourvoicesproject.com slash podcast this has been Courtney Schaus your host for this episode of representation in cinema of our voices project thank you again for listening And this episode of Representation in Cinema was recorded at the Food About Town studio and brought to you by Curate Males. Curate makes it easy to experience and support the wide range of Rochester's diverse restaurants. You order a meal that feeds two people for $35, and all you have to do is pick it up at Three Heads Brewing. They even pick a beer that goes best with the food that day. Go to CurateMeals.com and order for one of their events in January. Thanks again to Curate for sponsoring this episode.